Welcome back to What's on Your Mind. I'm Dr. Gene Bresson. And I'm Dr. Steve Schlossman. And we're child psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Here's what we'll talk about today. Today we're going to be talking about a really hot topic and one that I think may be a bit controversial. You know, for a long time, adolescents, when they committed offenses, were uh, put in juvenile detention centers, and we would see if they could uh, be amenable to treatment, to be rehabilitated. But increasingly over the years, teenagers have been tried in many states as adults and sent to adult prisons. And this has been an a trend that has been going on for quite a while. Now, today we have two experts who are going to talk with us about this, and we want to see, you know, are adolescents different than adults? So Dr. Robert Kinscherf is clinical and forensic psychologist and an attorney who's on the faculty of the Center on Law, Brain, and Behavior at Massachusetts General Hospital, and he's on the faculty in the doctoral clinical psychology program of the Massachusetts School of Professional Psychology. He's also senior associate at the National Center for Mental Health and Juvenile Justice. And we have Judy Edersheim, who's co-director of the MGH Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior. And she's also an attorney and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. So, uh, Robert, can you tell us a little bit about how adolescents are treated in the justice system and how are they treated differently or similar to adults? Well, Gene, starting in the mid-1990s, laws were changed to make it easier to prosecute uh, adolescents as adults. And although the crime rate for adolescents has been dropping pretty consistently since that time and is at about the same point where it was in 1970, we still have a system that is too often geared towards bringing children into the adult criminal justice system or incarcerating them in juvenile facilities for prolonged periods of time. And... um. So, Judy, let's turn to you. Are adolescents different than adults? And if so, I mean, we know. I was going to say, I, I, it, it, may, it may surprise you to know that I'm not an attorney, but um, that sounds like a leading question, counselor. I learned to say that from watching, you know, whatever Andy Griffith became later on that. Yeah. Madlock, right. Uh, I'm, um, le- I'm, le- I'm, I'm yeah. leading, leading. You're leading. But um, there but, is but, a point to this. But, you know, the point is, okay, so let me ask it this way. How are teenagers different? And why adults? does that matter? And why does it matter in this in situation? This system? Yeah. Well, I think that is the, the you've combined to manufacture the the ultimate question, which is are adolescents different from adults and are they different from adults in ways that are legally relevant, in ways that we really need to think about when we talk about their interaction with the justice system. So I'm going to take the first part of the million dollar question first. So adolescents are quite different from adults in almost every way we can measure and I say almost every way. If we're looking at their brains, uh, and that's helped with the emergence of a, of a raft of new neuroscience about what adolescent brains are like, adolescent brains are quite different from adult brains. They are not miniatures of grown-up brains. And they're different in really two basic ways. Uh, you know, for simplified purposes, their brains mature cognitively before they mature emotionally and socially. So what you have are fairly well-developed cognitive abilities in adolescence, maybe ranging from about 13 to 23, let's say, that window, because there's nothing magical about 18 for the brain's purposes. But for an average adolescent, there are lots of faculties that are not matured yet, and those are very important to behavior. 
So if you think about the brain as a two-component system, white matter and gray matter, the gray matter is the business end, the computational end, where all the cell bodies are and where we think of the seat of the computational abilities of the brain. And then there are white matter tracts, these so-called long axons, the myelination you hear so much about. And those two processes are undergoing rapid change in adolescence, and it really matters for what faculties adolescents do and don't have. Right, and, and they develop in a bottom-up way. That's that's a sort of, I mean, so, so, so we think of the lower regions of the brain, which is, aren't bad regions. We need those to be human. That's why we like Shakespeare, Britney Spears, whatever we happen to like. Those regions are better myelinated, and the further north we get, the harder it is for those signals to make it to the computational regions of the brain so they can make good decisions, good judgment. Yes, I, I, I would say in its most simplified form that the superhighway connections between midbrain and frontal brain structures and the superhighway information processing that's going to happen isn't all the way there yet. So adolescents do have less well-developed connectivity between brain regions and their information processing. Those nice myelinated superhighways aren't done. And what you see when you look at the studies of juveniles done by the famous neuroscientists, what it shows is that myelination increases dramatically during adolescence. And there's a, there's a paradox, which is that the gray matter shrinks. Right. Or another way of putting it is that the mighty engine on our adolescence brain develops before the brakes do. So well, just sense. taking yes. off on yes. that, so, 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 so moving from, you know, neurons to behavior, what does this mean about their impulsivity? What does this mean about their decision-making? What does this mean about... Well, let's just cut to the chase. What does this mean about their ability to consistently follow the rules of the law? Ooh. Well, um, the parts that mature that are maturing, the so-called what lots of neuroscientists call the moving parts, are particularly changing during adolescence, and we know they're not done. And the parts that are probably the most legally relevant in gross terms would be the frontal lobes, right? So the frontal lobes generally control planning and social choices and comportment and impulsivity and impulse control and higher higher thinking. And those parts are the parts that are not yet matured. So if you want to make a translation, and it should be a loose translation from the brain to behavior, you're talking about deficits in impulse control, in self-control, in postponing gratification. There's a high attunement to reward in an adolescent brain. They seek thrills. They seek rewards. They seek novelty. They seek experience. All those things are what adolescents are supposed to be doing. They're growing and they're changing and they're searching. But when that comes into contact with a dangerous situation, those systems can be very disadvantageous. Or even just a hotly emotional situation. It's funny, I was just talking to a kid the other day, and I I will disguise this, you know, because he's somebody that I work with. Police pulled him over at one point and said, hey, can I take a look at your car? And he said, do you have probable cause, officer? that's a wonderful example. Now, he'd learned this in his class in school, in his high school class on legal procedure. But it's not a good idea to ask that of a policeman when he pulls you over for whatever reason. So at that moment, it was a hotly affective environment. He was ashamed. He had his friends with him in the car. He was driving too fast. And so at that point, and I'm obviously dressing up the story a little bit so it's not identifiable, he made 
a kind of air of impulsivity as a function, we could argue, of immature brain development. Yeah, okay, so, so given that, but let me ask you, Robert. So you have these kids who aren't, um, who are making impulsive decisions, who are acting based on emotions. What happened to our trend to see if they're able to be rehabilitated? What happens to them when they're placed in adult court, in, in adult jails? Well, let me back that up. Um, what happened to our impulse to rehabilitate? The impulse to rehabilitate <laughs> is still there, but it got lost for a period of time when we took more punitive policies to make it easier to prosecute and incarcerate juveniles as adults. But before we even get to the adult setting, we have to appreciate that not only are the youth adolescents who are likely to come into contact with the juvenile court system, they're different, again, from other kinds of adolescents. Our juvenile justice system is much more likely to uh, have penetrate into it. Children who are poor, children of color, uh, the data is pretty consistent that we have very high rates of diagnosable mental illness, learning disability, intellectual disability amongst the young people that penetrate into the system. So by the time we think about the 10,000 or so youth who on any given day are incarcerated in an adult facility, we're really talking about a subgroup of a subgroup of a subgroup of the most vulnerable of the adolescents. So two big questions about that. Uh, maybe, Judy, you and, and Robert can discuss this. One is, what are the chances for these kids who are highly vulnerable if they were placed in youth detention centers in Massachusetts and in DYS, Department of uh, Youth Services. What are the outcomes? I mean, d do these kids have a chance? And, and, and if you wouldn't mind, contrast that with what are their chances if they go to an adult right. um, detention Right, right. Those are the two questions. Well, let me speak to how the brain, uh, the brain research actually enlightened us in this department. So we've always known that most kids will stop doing bad things on their own. And that's not a loose statement. That's a very specific statement. We know that most kids who have bad behaviors so-called desist. They spontaneously stop. They get a stake in society. They have relationships. They have better modeling. They have social experience. And they just stop. So left to maturational experience, they do well. And now the brain research is telling us why. Because during this very plastic period of brain development where Impulse control is coming on board and social consciousness is coming on board. They act like environmental sponges. So if you put an adolescent with an adolescent brain in a toxic context, their brain trajectories might change forever. And that's the basic problem with taking someone out of a pro-development, pro-social, pro-peer environment and moving them into an environment where what they see is a steady diet of trauma and stress. Now, you're saying that these kids will desist, they'll get better on their own, but based on the environment or just in any environment? In virtually any environment. So even young people from the most disadvantaged environments will tend over time as a group to desist. It's not coincidental that it, the self-desistance tracks brain maturation, which also is reflected in social maturity and the ability to get a stake in society. The alternative, putting them into adult incarceration settings, is, uh, is not good. The, the outcomes are grim. If incarcerating lots of juveniles would actually drive down the crime rate, uh, it might be a step worth taking. On the other hand, the evidence is in exactly the opposite direction. The more we incarcerate young people with adults, the more likely they are to recidivate 
and not only to re- reoffend, but to reoffend with a violent crime against a person. Can, can you that. define recidivate? Just, just to reoffend. To, 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 to just do the same or a, or a similar uh, kind of behavior over let, again. Let, yeah. let, let me just be. Let me just get real real basic about this. What is toxic about adult jails for these kids? What What are some of the factors that make it a toxic environment? Well, from a from a from purely a brain based and psychological point of view. You are depriving a brain of the inputs it needs to mature properly. So adolescent brains, you can think of them literally as a sponge, and they are structurally molded by the environments they sit in, not just psychologically. And, of course, I think psychologically it's the most important parameter. But even if you were going to look neurologically, all of that pruning of gray matter and expansion of white matter – That is environmentally driven. The reason children seek novelty and thrill and reward is that that process helps their brain mature and become attuned to all the things we want them to become. And when you put them in an environment that is without educational opportunity and without social interchange and peer groups, positive peer groups, they're isolated, that is a a pretty good lock on how to create a permanently poor trajectory of psychosocial development. We also know that juveniles in adult facilities are in chronically high-stress environments. This also shapes their neurological development. They're also much more likely to be the victims of uh, physical or sexual assault while they're there, um, which tends not to support adequate brain uh, development and social development. So you can think about it really as choosing to put a young person into an environment which, where we could foreseeably predict most of them would actually get worse rather than and, better. And, and as you said, not just any young person, uh, the most vulnerable. These tend to be amongst the most vulnerable. So, that's people. right, Steve. It's like a, it's like a three-hit theory. Right. It's, 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 you have an adolescent whose brain is immature. You have a group of adolescents who are particularly vulnerable in every way. And then you add the worst condition possible, which would be adult jail. So this all makes such sense. Why? Are we doing this? Do do the people who are putting these kids in in adult jails understand this data? I mean, it seems so obvious the way you guys explain it. Why are we doing this? Aren't we creating more harm to society? Aren't we costing society more by doing it this way? And the answer to that is yes. And I think we have begun to see a sea change driven in part, perhaps even in large part, by this brain science. So it used to be, are you hard on crime or are you soft on crime? The conversation now is, how do we get smart on crime? So juvenile justice systems are thinking about how do you divert kids who really don't need to penetrate either the juvenile justice system or the adult system? How do you divert them out? How do you identify the mental health needs, the social needs of kids and meet them before you drive them into systems which – have very high rates of failure, if what we mean by failure is failure to rehabilitate, and are also massively expensive to maintain. So this is one of the conversations where people who used to be thought of as conservatives, you know, tough on crime, liberal, soft on crime, are beginning to have the same conversation about how to get smart on crime. Well, so the ultimate question then is what can we all be doing in society now to make things better? I mean, what would be cost-effective and what would be effective in terms of uh, outcomes. Well, I, I, Gene, I think what we, what we have is a great experimental laboratory right here in Massachusetts. Uh, we have a particularly enlightened state government. 
and I say that proudly, we have a particularly enlightened division of youth services, which is where juvenile detention occurs when it doesn't happen in adult court. And our division of youth services, our DYS, is a model, a national model, for using the psychological evidence, the behavioral evidence, and the neuroscience evidence to change its model of how you detain and rehabilitate youths. And they have a beautiful refined program which approaches what are the special issues that are troubling with youth who are heavily connected to the juvenile justice system and how do we support them. The Department of Youth Services has also been a lead agency in creating alternatives to detention because before we even incarcerate youth after they've been found delinquent of a crime, many of them used to be routinely held two weeks, 30 days, two months. And we know that even a short-term detention for a child greatly reduces the likelihood that they will successfully complete that school year, be able to effectively engage in their communities. We're also the only state in the union that has a statewide juvenile court clinic system, which the judges can use uh, in gathering information to help Uh, create dispositions for young people as alternatives to sending them into uh, the deeper end of the juvenile justice system. Uh, We only hold on to, I'm sorry, we only only prosecute in Massachusetts youth as adults if they're 14 years of age or older uh, for homicide. So in a way, because we keep all the other kids, no matter how serious the charges are in our system, we have a great laboratory for figuring out what are the best policies and practices. So, so as we wrap up, this, this strikes me. So given, given that we've called it a laboratory, what are our outcomes? What, what do we, what's the data show? Well, our own, for our own Division of Youth Services and the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior has an evolving program with the Division of Youth Services. For their outcomes, they are measuring specific rates of relapse, how well people do in the community, um, the access to services that they have. So our own Division of Youth Services has a program where people who are leaving Department of Youth custody at age 18, they've aged out, are actually voluntarily signing up for continued services, and not a few of them. I believe it's around 50% of youth who are essentially, quote, graduating from DYS custody and from DYS services are voluntarily signing up for college tuition support, housing support, and uh, community-based mental health services, that's really a model for how bright a future you can, you can really give someone if you make a transition from delinquent behavior into pro-social role behavior. Right, right. And, you know, it's interesting because before I can imagine a detractor saying, what, we're going to spend college twitch, but these are, these are pro-social activities they're signing up for. This is exactly what we would want of them, of what anybody anywhere would want of them. That's why this sort of conservative liberal divide starts to make less sense. Yeah, well, it's a very modest citizens. It's yeah. a very modest investment in helping a young person establish themselves as a productive citizen. And so we can either continue to spend tens of thousands of dollars a year in order to maintain them in prisons as they grow older and oh by the way um, as they penetrate more and more deeply into the criminal justice system they have to make new victims. So we can either create new victims in a massively expensive correctional system or we can make a modest investment up front and help these young people kind of harness their maturation, including their brain maturation, and join us productive members of our community. I mean, you can think of it this way, and this is directly stolen from Robert Kinchereff. You can either think of a trajectory from cradle to jail, or it can be from cradle to college. 
And that's not a liberal issue. That's not a conservative issue. That's a Dylan song. That's what that is. <laughs> there that's, you go. That's, that's, that's well, I want to thank you, Robert and Judy, for coming on. And, and for those of you out here who've been listening, you can check out the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior and go to their website. It has a tremendous amount of really great information. And uh, state your comments and questions for us. And uh, thank you all for listening. I'm Gene Bresson. And I'm Steve Schlossman. Thanks. Thanks.